Welcome to Heavy Hitter Sports, the podcast focused on game-changing athletes and business leaders. I'm your host, Mark Hogesang. Today's guest is Rudy Manival, who's a friend and a former colleague from my days at Nike. Rudy spent 23 years with the company, leading footwear, apparel, and equipment product development efforts, much of which was focused on soccer. In our conversation, we discussed Rudy's upbringing in Paris, his tireless quest to work for Nike, his exciting Tour de France adventure, and his buddy Rolandinho, who's featured on the podcast cover. We talked about leadership, Rudy's love of building products and solving problems, and his new role with Planet Fitness here in the Northwest. Pink soccer boots, space travel, and bacon also receive airtime. Enjoy, sports fans. Rudy, thank you so much for joining me today. Having worked with you and having known you for a while, I know that football, soccer, is a big part of your life. And I wanted to open up with a quote. I was listening to a podcast, the renowned Arsenal coach, Arsene Wenger, was being interviewed. And what he said was that life is all about dreams, some of which come true, some of which do not. Is there a dream in your life that has come true, that has been really meaningful to you? Hey, Mark. Indeed, it's been a while. Thank you for having me on your great podcast. Thank you, sir. Uh, very, very good question from, from a great man, Mr. Wenger himself. Yes, I had a dream to come live here because I wanted to come work here for the company I worked for many years. And that dream happened. But I'd say the only reason that dream happened is because I made it a goal. I woke up and I stopped dreaming and set my eyes on the targets. But we're talking about Nike, obviously. And that's me growing up in late 80s, early 90s, literally setting, locking my eyes on, on Beerton, Oregon and coming and working, living here. So yes, that's clearly the one that comes to mind first. That's great. Is there a dream that may not have been fully realized? Going to space. Oh. Traveling to space, maybe. And we're getting closer and closer to commercial space flights. We're there. Uh, It just takes a little bit of cash, right? So Exactly. And friendship sometimes when you're thinking about Jeff and Brunson and these guys. Yeah. Yeah, it takes cash or being a good friend. If you think back, is there a single event within your life that helped shape you? Ah, another great question. I don't know if I can call it an event. It was probably a conversation with my dad or more like his reaction to something that was happening. I was offered a job after I got my degree. I went, I interviewed, and I wasn't necessarily excited about the job offer. It wasn't about the money or anything. It was about the job itself. I was working on construction sites and the goal or the targets was like, hey, you're going to be doing this for 10 years. You'll learn on the spot and maybe someday you'll become like a superintendent or whatever. So I went home and my dad said, did you get the job? I'm like, no, I didn't get it. He's like, why is that? It's because I didn't want it. So we're going to that conversation of the how and why. And, and of course, I don't know, 40 years prior when my dad went for his first job interview, the goal was to get the job. And I wanted to keep going to school. I wanted to keep learning. And in a much shorter period of time, I'd probably reach my goal of actually managing the construction site or whatever it is I wanted to do. So that conversation led to my dad not necessarily talking about school or anything I wanted to do. Sports were a big part of it and not necessarily supporting me or actually in an obvious or visible way. He was always supportive, but that's when I decided to tell my mom and dad, okay, so long as I can still live here and find a meal on the table when I come home, I'll yeah. be fine. 
and I got a job in sports, actually, retail. I went to school. I worked hard because I really wanted to prove my dad wrong. Mm. And he was proud. But that kind of shaped me for the long run. That's really interesting. And by virtue of the accent, I think maybe listeners will know that you grew up in Paris or outside of Paris. Can you talk a little bit more about your upbringing, your childhood, and what it was like at that time? Yeah, sure. I'd say nothing special. My parents from the French Caribbean island of Martinique, so they emigrated. They left Martinique, actually. I was just talking about working jobs and things like that. So it was mostly to find a job. So in the early 60s, they, they arrived in Paris and they met. And then that was just outside of Paris, what we call the suburbs. And so I grew up there, happy childhood. My dad was actually playing football, playing soccer. Oh. And our Sundays were mostly about getting the car and going with him and supporting him at his games and things like that. And that gave me a taste for sports, but actually because each time I would play, he would tell me, not coach me, not teach me, but literally tell me that I sucked. So oh. I picked up cycling. I was always on my bike. And from dawn to dusk, I would be on my bike and go around to a point that at age 10, he signed me up for a cycling school where you don't compete. You just learn like the A mm-hmm. to Z of, of cycling. So it could be about how to ride at full, how to do anything like mechanical. And that was until mid-80s. I was, what, 16, 17. And the Los Angeles Olympics were happening. And I fell in love with track because of, you're going to ask me about my favorite athlete, I'm sure. sure. So because of Carl Lewis, I'm like, right. I, go, I want to go and, and run track. At the same time I was growing up, my grandfather was in the French military. He was stationed in Germany. And he would always come back or I would travel to Germany and spend one week, two weeks vacation there. Uh, they had the best toys. I don't remember if it was a birthday or Christmas. He, he gifted me this truck, which was a farmer's truck that had like cows and pigs and all sorts of animals in it. And that truck would basically drive and hit a wall or something, an obstacle, and all the animals would come out and just do their thing. And I was very curious about how this was possible. And the reason I'm saying that is I'm very curious and I wanted Mm -hmm. to know how that thing would work. So I would take it apart and put it back together. And later, as I started growing and went to school, studied civil engineering, like I said, and, and construction engineering, my curiousness, my curious nature led me to trying to understand how sports product worked as well. I was at a stage where I had to complete my degree, but I mentioned earlier that my first job was actually in sports retail. And then I got to wear different product brands and that led me to set a goal of making a career and like creating sports product because again, it was about the engineering and also my passions for sports coming together. It's interesting too, because we've worked together so closely. I know that curiosity and that interest in problem solving has really defined your career. And you mentioned Carl Lewis and for younger listeners, they may not recall Carl Lewis, but he was the dominant track and field athlete during the Mm -hmm. 80s, won nine gold medals, was absolutely Mm -hmm. phenomenal. And there's a period of time where he said, life is about timing. If you think about your own life, is there a moment where you just timed things perfectly? (sighs) I'm not someone you would call spiritual. But I also believe through experiences that everything happens for a reason. And before I met my wife many years ago, I was in a relationship with someone and that someone's mom was really pushing us to have children. And I said, no, I'm not ready for children. I don't have a job I love. We don't own a place. I'm, I'm just not ready for that. And then years later, I met with Micheline, who's currently my wife. We've been together for many years. It didn't take long for us to have our 
first child, Kezia. And I started with Nike in September of 96. And probably a couple of weeks later, she was pregnant. And it's that thing when you talk about readiness, and it's not that we were trying or anything, it just happened. I had a job at loved at a place where I lived and, and I liked my place. And she was the one, period. And again, when I talk about the job I liked and everything, so I didn't choose the timing. I, I, I don't know if the, the, the time was right or what happened, but I think all the stars aligned for us to get on that amazing journey of parenthood, but also being able a few years later to travel and live in another country and a few years later then to come and, and live here. So if you talk about perfect timing, I think it was about the right time. It's interesting. That story makes me think about almost all parents, right? Because no matter how much planning goes into it, I can remember the Lamaze classes and the like and the reading and the, but I can also remember as we brought our son home, my wife and I crossed the hearth. And I don't know if I said it out loud, but what I was thinking to myself was, now what do we do? Because we didn't really have family in the area. And suddenly you have this newborn and it's your responsibility. So I don't know that the timing ever is perfect for a new parent, but in 99% of the cases or more, it works out. Let's talk about uh, your first job at Nike because that's your dream and you get there. Yeah. So it's interesting. You talked about timing. And again, that relates to uh, what I was just talking about. I'm working in Paris for a public works construction company. I open L'Equipe, the most famous French sports newspaper. And I see an ad for Ekins. It says, hey, Nike become like Ekin and with a little bit of a job description. And, and again, that's really what I wanted to do. I started putting together an application. Remember, there was no email back then. <laughs> only snail mail and, and all of that. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to I'm gonna apply. So I put together my resume, uh, cover letter, put all of that in the envelope. And I'm about to put a stamp on it, but I also realized that there's the biggest like European trade show happening for sports. So I jumped in my car and it's only like 25, 30 minutes out of where my office was, downtown Paris. So I drive up there. I managed to buy a professional only ticket to get in. I don't remember how I did it, but I get in and I go straight to Nike. And I'm like, hey, my name is Rudy. This is what I do. This is what I want to do. And here you go. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And I also went to the other guys because all the brands were there. And I remember talking to someone I still talk to today that said, hey, do you have a minute you know, to sit down? So I'm like, oh, sure. So the next thing I'm like sitting with somebody across the table that's at Nike. And he's, you know what? I'm going to take your application and we'll be in touch. Weeks later, I get a call and I get invited to the Nike France headquarters for interviews. And the guys across the table, they all have amazing sports backgrounds. They all went to business schools or whatever. And I'm like the oddball at the table. I'm like, yeah, okay. So apparently the day went well and I learned about that like years later. But a month later, I get a letter in the mail that says, hey, well done, but I didn't get the job. Okay, fine. And it still says today when you receive that kind of response, hey, we will keep you in mind if anything comes up. And then I stayed in touch with them. And again, when I talked about dream versus goal, it's one of those things. I was really, really stubborn. And remember, I was running track at the time. So I was getting Nike product. So I would go you know, to the headquarters sometimes and, and, and I knew a couple of people there. So I kept making the rounds until I get a call like early July 1996. Nike had signed the Tour de France like weeks prior the race started. And they had to do not only all the jerseys, the yellow, the green, the dotted, but also all the merchandising and things like that. So they're putting a team together to go out and do that and they have no idea how to do it. So wow. they call me up and they're like, hey, we need somebody, we need somebody now. And the race had started like 
three or four days prior. So I get in a car overnight, I get in, I think it was Aix-les-Bains, and that's how my journey started. I spent three weeks, three amazing weeks on the Tour de France, and then I went back to Paris. It was a one-month contract, and they asked me for my notes and everything. I told them I needed time, so they gave me another 30 days. And then September came, and I stayed 23 plus years. That's amazing. As a cyclist, as somebody who always wanted to work for Nike, to be thrown into the fire in such a situation. So Who's the dominant? Do you, do, you want, do, you want, do you want to know something? Sorry, yeah. I'm interrupting on purpose because do you know where my first name's coming from? Rudy. I do not. So you asked me about my childhood and my love for cycling, things like that. So in 1966, when my sister was born, the Tour de France was about to start in Paris. She was also born in, in July. And my dad is driving to the hospital to see my mom. And there's this German cyclist at the time that goes by the name Rudy Altig. And he was big. He was world champion. He passed away a couple of years ago, I think. But that's where my first name comes from. So he's, okay, I'm going to hospital. I'm going to have a son. I'm going to name him Rudy. He called me Rudy because of that great cyclist. That's interesting. Given what you've shared about your dad, he doesn't strike me as somebody who would improvise like that. But that's amazing because I was going to ask you at that period of time in 96, when you jumped onto the tour there to help out with Nike, was that the Greg LeMond era? Who was the dominant racer at that point? No, that was beyond. It was uh, Miguel Indurain. Okay. okay. It was Miguel Indurain. And and what's funny, if you'd allow me to share that anecdote. So, oh, certainly. Like I said, I drove almost all night, got into uh, X at two or three in the morning, barely got any sleep. Next morning, they wake me up at 6.30 or 7 a.m. And I can't see a thing, but I'm like so excited. We get out, we get ready. The job was really to sit in a van like all day and write a survey, take notes and keep your mouth shut and just observe and report. So that was my job. We get to the very end of the stage. It's actually, it was the very end of Miguel Indurain's reign. And it was when the Danish Bjorn Riss won that stage and Miguel Indurain never won the tour ever again. Many years later, we learned that Bionaries was on drugs when that all happened. But I stayed in the van because I was like so tired and I'm like super tired. There's a blue van right in front of our Renault van and it's Miguel Indurain's sporting director. Mm -hmm. And I hear like a bang on the door and they literally try to get Miguel's bike in the van so that they can leave before all the journalists, you know, catch him. Oh my goodness. Because he had lost lost the, the yellow jersey on that stage. And that really opened my eye to how big of an event the Tour de France is. And again, just to be in the middle of it, I've enjoyed every single day I spent there, every single minute, every single hour. And I was lucky enough to go back uh, a few times a year. Well, and being French with, you grew up with it, obviously for most most Americans, we don't get familiarized with the sport until Lance Armstrong arrives on the scene. Before we started recording today, you had a 90 minute conversation with a pretty notable soccer Mm -hmm. player. Is there an athlete along your career that you did interact with that left a lasting impression? Because I know you've had contact with so many through the years working in Nike footwear and apparel and equipment, but is there one notable relationship or interaction that really stands out above all others? There are a few. I know this is not about name drops. It's more about sharing the experiences and the lasting legacy. When Ronaldinho was a young yet very talented player and he arrived in in Paris in 2000, nobody knew him and he knew nobody and he didn't speak anything other than Portuguese. And I was at EHQ back then and I was working on the PSG uniforms 
And one of my things when I was working on product was not to just ship and expect the athlete to understand what the product was. So I would always find a way to go and talk directly to the athlete, tell the story. And it was not about the buy-off. It was for them to understand how this could actually improve their performance because that's sure. what Nike is all about. So I would do that. So I would go on preseason camps with PSG. And then Ronaldinho happened to be there and he knew nobody. And, and I was out there. So we would play ping pong after dinner and sit down and try to understand each other's language. And over the years, from PSG to Barcelona, working on the apparel there, all the way to moving to EHP and working on the signature footwear, so traveling to Barcelona and mm -hmm. meeting with him or before the World Cup, going to the Brazil training camp and again, meeting with his family, his brother, his sister, everybody, and, and him then years later traveling to Beerton and us spending time together. That's one of those things that's very unique. I was not talking to Ronaldinho just before this call, disclaimer, somebody else, but another athlete that really, really left a, a lasting legacy and you love him, you hate him. It's Cristiano Ronaldo. And my very first meetings with him, and, and that goes, I don't know, 15 years ago, maybe. He, he already had the attitude that, that makes a lot of people hate him, but I've always professional, never impressed by who he was. And he was there to do a job and I was there to do a job. And most of the time, we didn't have much time. So I would always remind him or the sports marketing rep that was there with him that, hey, we have key objectives and we can do that and you do your thing. So get off your phone or whatever. But his dedication to his passion, I don't think there's anybody that has that kind of dedication. Like him being in a gym at 36 years old, being able to do what he does, not because of his gift or his talent. Okay, if you don't work to sustain that talent, you're not going to go far. I think as a man and as an athlete, I think he's left also a very lasting memory. I think you're right. And if you think about Angela Duckworth's book, Grit, I don't know that there's an athlete that embodies grit and focus and passion and getting the absolute best out of themselves. I don't know that there's anybody that can rival Cristiano. When the question is raised as to who's the greatest of all time, where does your vote go? Does it go to Messi or to Ronaldo? It's... I'm biased on things <laughs> with Messi now being at PSG might have gone like the other way a little bit more, but I've always admired Ronaldo because again, I was talking about challenging himself and things like that. Ronaldo played for what? Sporting and then United yeah. and mm -hmm. then Juventus and then United or Real Madrid, Juventus. So he's played for what? Five, six clubs maybe yeah. where Messi only yeah. played for Rosario and, and Barca. So I think when it comes to pure talent, difference is like the Barca team didn't matter who the head coach was because Messi played with multiple head coaches. Mm -hmm. But the team or the tactics were always built around him yeah. to maximize his skills and talent and things like that. If we switch back to talking about product, because the vast majority of those 23 years at Nike, you've been enveloped within the product creation process. What in your mind makes a great product? You talked about talking to the athlete both before afterwards. But beyond that, what are the keys to great product development? I think it's about to product development takes time. You know, product creation takes time in general. On average, we talk about 18 months from ID to, uh, to consumer. And it's a lot of time goes down to resources. Of course, you need talents. If you don't have the vision, if you don't have the people to put it together, you're going to struggle. But it's the resources you have that could also separate the good from the great. I think it's the vision. 
after all, it's what is it you're trying to achieve with with product? And during my 23 years at Nike, very few of the products I worked on were not performance related. And it's interesting because I've always looked at myself as somebody that could not navigate the sportswear world because I could not find a reason to create that hoodie or fleece right. pants or whatever, because mm-hmm. I always believed in the performance reasons. And a lot of time, performance is measurable. So when you can measure something, you can set some targets. Those targets become goal. And as you create that product for that cycle, for testing, for everything you do, you can measure how well you're doing to meeting mm-hmm. or sometimes exceeding those targets. So there's this part, which is the more objective way. There's also something that's very subjective, which is about the experience with the product. And that's really when I got into footwear that I got to begin thinking that way. A pair of soccer cleats is probably the most important piece of equipment for a soccer player. A lot of times we would go to the top 150 players at Nike. They would wear something that looked just what your kid or my kid could go and buy in a store, but it wasn't the same thing. And when we talked about reducing the gap between the elite athlete and the everyday consumer, I felt that something wasn't right. And that thing that wasn't right was that they didn't get to experience the same thing. And one way or the other, the little kid didn't get to experience what the top athlete experienced and the other way around. My philosophy, my big idea was really to reduce that gap to a point that kid could wear the exact same product Ronaldo wore on Sunday or Ronaldo would get lose his cleats and he could walk into a store and get the exact same pair off the shelves. And we had that place, we still do have it, or Nike still has it in Montebelluna that made those custom shoes. In the end, the shoe outside of the fine tuning of having a different last, which is a form you know, inside a boot that mirrors basically the athlete's foot. All components, the materials, the laces, the plate, everything was one for one. And that was one of my greatest achievements of being able not only to deliver a great product, but a similar experience. It didn't matter if you're Ronaldo or little Johnny down the street, you would have the same product. I think that's amazing too, because Nike, of course, is an aspirational brand. And by definition, that means not everyone will be able to afford the very best, the elite, because that soccer boot may be at retail for $280. But mom with her seven-year-old clearly is not going to spend that amount of money, even if it's available. She wants to go in and spend $75 or $80 and get out of there because practice is that afternoon. And that was also part of, of one of the, it's not only about dealing with elite athletes. Who keeps the lights on? It's actually that mom sure. that's going to spend the money for a seven-year-old. Yeah. And it doesn't matter if she only can spend your know, 40 bucks or 280, like you said, but it, it is what it is. And I believe this is where it all begins. And one of the things I also wanted and chose to really push hard to do is, especially Mercurial, which is the most aspirational silo in the industry, most aspirational soccer cleat ever, was to create a line that would be accessible to every kid that wanted mm-hmm. to play wearing that product. So it was not only looking at what we would do for the elite athlete. Actually, I raised the bar there because creating price point way above the $200 mark. Uh, so I was like, we can't afford to just limit ourselves, limit performance to a retail price point. But when you look at the other way, it's you're gonna work into you're gonna walk into Dick Sporting Goods or Decathlon and you can't get the Mercurial because they're not about higher price points. So we wanted to make sure that part of the experience would also be available to the consumer that can only spend, you know, forty, fifty dollars on a pair of clits. You've also spent a lot of time in licensed apparel with the best and the biggest football clubs. And your story makes me also think, because my career has been performance oriented as well, both at Nike and at Easton and Adidas. But I actually think the moment that I was most excited at Nike was when Neymar transfers to PSG. And it doesn't come out of the blue, but it only takes 
maybe two weeks for Nike to rally to get that number 10 jersey in our store on Champs-Élysées and everywhere else within France. And that took so many different functions, so many different people making that happen. And if you look at it from the outside, you go, why can't that occur just instantaneously? But there's a multitude of reasons why that can't. But when that went up on our site, knowing that there were lines outside of stores within Paris waiting for that jersey and to then make it available, that was an exceptional moment. And I think that was one of the moments that I was most proud to be involved in some part in making that happen because my job at the time was licensed apparel merchant for football. That's a very good point. And I was trying to think at another industry that could replicate that kind of rapid response, if you will, yeah. as in, hey, something happens, we have to react immediately and not let our consumer down. And right. tools might seem like a long time. Having been there, I know that it's nearly impossible. And what oh, yeah. you guys did at the time was like pulling a miracle and making that happen. Is there one or two products within your career that you were involved in creating that really stand out? I think the one I would call my true highlight is the pink mercurial. Because when you think about the impact of these boots, it was one of the very first obviously crazy colored soccer boots or I'd say sport footwear ever. And it's one of those things that happened because I dared to ask, if you will, if we could do it. But in a way that was convincing enough that I wasn't really asking. I was just saying, hey, we're going to do this. And I had a manager at the time that really trusted my vision. And, and he said, yeah, what's the plan? And I also walked in with a plan. I'm like, hey, it's going to be then and it's going to be this much and it's going to go there. And those are like the athletes I'm thinking that could wear it. And we did that and the rest is history because having the audacity to give like a, and it was like very pink, like really bright with a white massive swoosh on it to male professional athletes. I had a couple of athletes when I put it in front of them, they went crazy. And it was, it's that thing, love, hate. Nine would sure. say no thanks because it was a first. But when you had that one guy that would say, that's for me, and when you think about what Mercurial is all about, about being fast, being the fastest, somewhat being arrogant and, and yeah, not to care much out. about what the yeah. other thinks, standing out, it worked. And everybody did pink and then whatever color. So that's really a key highlight. And I'd say, I was talking about athletes challenging themselves. I have a body, I'm an athlete. I really challenged myself when I joined Nike Equipment and had to learn baseball. I didn't know much about baseball, where I'm from not really something you know, sure, we course. follow or, or, or care much about. But coming from product and with the footwear performance, mercurial background, I talk a lot about transferable skills, being able to understand a product that had not changed for 50 plus years, right. being a catcher's glove and leveraging the Nike DNA into there's always a better way looking at materials innovation being like at the time Maguire and Fuse technologies and like synthetic materials and creating a glove that actually MLB players trusted enough to go out there under the lights and make amazing catches and one of them George Springer mm -hmm. with the Astros winning MVP in the World Series wearing that glove mm -hmm. is one of those things where I'm like oh wow I yeah. had a great team around me trusted the vision trusted somewhat the diverse point of view of coming in and challenging status quo to create something unique that did help an athlete actually won win MVP in the World Series. A couple of things that you just said conjured up some memories of my own. I think with regard to the pink boot, because Nike had become a credible, reliable, notable resource to young athletes, you could make that happen. I can remember when Nike purchased Bauer and I was the U.S. Director of Sales for Equipment and Nike itself got involved with sticks and gloves and high 
hockey equipment and skates. I, in front of our entire equipment sales force, introduced, launched a white ice hockey skate. And because Nike was not a credible entity in hockey, that did not do well. We had the best player in the game at the time, Sergei Fedorov of Detroit, wearing it. And then that wasn't enough. Then we came back with a pale yellow skate. Both of those flopped because we really hadn't earned the right to do something so innovative, so bold, so dynamic. We thought we could because we were Nike, but in essence, we made a mistake. And I was also there in the inception of launching baseball and softball product as well. And certain things did exceptionally well. Our batter's gloves, we became the dominant resource and still a major force within the industry there. We struggled with ball gloves initially. And although we placed bats, we struggled as well because that's truly much like when you were talking about the soccer boot being the most important performance product in soccer. The that is the most important performance product in both baseball and softball. You're not willing to compromise as, a, as an athlete there. Absolutely. And, and there's the brand equity, the brand value that right. comes with it. I mean, Nike, and again, I'm talking like 2006, 2007, when we did the, the pink boots, the, the brand was up there, very credible. And of course, Mercurial was big. We had Ronaldo, we had done like a lot of different things with a number of athletes. So we had that credibility where it worked in our favor and was uh, industry defining, groundbreaking, changing the game and, and all of that, but not something we could do in a sport like baseball because we did not have it. We were the dominant brand for right. cleats and batting gloves, if you will. But as far as the number of athletes wearing Nike gloves in the league was amazing, but that was due not to the product. It was because of the contracts we signed. And so yeah. we always were at a disadvantage when it came to Wilson and Rawlings and right. those brands, because even with the exact same product, different branding, a trust wasn't yeah. there. And, and we really struggled with ball gloves. And to my knowledge, we still are. Yeah. Now it's been formed out to JR286 as a accessories partner to Nike as a brand. Let's switch gears a little bit and start talking about leadership because you've had the privilege of many managing any number of teams within your tenure at Nike. Has there been a leader within your career that has stood out where you learned a tremendous amount from him or her and that helped shape you as a leader yourself? There has been a few. I think as far as like tremendous amount or learning a lot and really looking at that leader, someone I would want to someday become, there has been moments, and again, good or bad, I had a terrible leader during my time in Europe. According to many, he wasn't that great of a leader, but he taught me something that to this day I still apply professionally and in my personal life as well is to assume nothing and confirm everything. And and it struck a chord because a lot of times you would say, yeah, that's the next move. That's the, it's going to happen, whatever. So I, I don't know if I want to call it being overconfident or whatever, but it's about checking all the boxes and making sure you check all the boxes, which is about confirming and not assuming. So not the best leader, but one day he said that and that really stuck. And then after I came here, I've had a number of leaders across the across the board. One thing I was going to say coming here, and I grew up, I, I watched basketball and, and the league, and we talk about the, the triple-double. And one thing I did that I'm very proud of is what I would call within Nike the double-triple. You understand what that is? That's working in a country, in a region, and global, and working in apparel and footwear and equipment. And I don't know many people at Nike that can say yeah, that. Yeah. So just just something well, I wanted to, to, to put out there yeah. as, as a nod to, to my career. I, I think we're diving so deep into Nike here. It might be hard for some listeners to understand this, but I can remember a time your comment <laughs> makes me think there was a period of time where I counted the numbers of teams that I was involved with in one specific job, and I got to nine. 
it was because there's so many different permutations and the matrix organization is so complex and you're responsible to so many different people and so many different leaders. And that makes it challenging to lead at times because you can't just put out an edict and have those that either work for you or those that you work with do what you have in mind. I think oftentimes with Nike, your best persuasion skills have to be directed internally versus externally, which at times is a little bit frustrating. What's most important to you as a leader? When you're looking at your team, what do you try and inspire? How do you lead? How do you manage? What are some of the things that are most instrumental to you in that respect? At the end of the day, if you manage a team, it's because you work for a company and there are business goals. So I think what's important is to be able to look back and say, I've met my business goals. Because at the end of the day, that's what people are going to look at. And that's how you're being measured, rewarded. Personally, I'm also looking at talent and growing talent. I've always looked at myself, not necessarily as we've been called managers or whatever. A lot of people are going to say, introduce you, yeah, this is my boss or whatever. And I don't like that. I don't like the word. I don't like the boss conversation because most of my career has been around athletes in sports. I look at myself as a coach, but I've had like very proud moments when as a manager, it's not so much about, can you do the job? One of the very first questions I asked, whether I join a team or have new hires on my team, it's what can I do for you? Okay. Where do you come from? Where are you going? Because my role as a manager, if you're here, I know you can do the job, period. There's always things happening, but I know that. But my role as a manager is clearly to look at your personal success. How can Mm -hmm. I help you grow? What can I teach you? What can I learn from you? And really, it's one of those things where I'm like, I've had successes unleashing talent. I think is really being able to spot the talent as a scout would do in a any sports organization and knowing that, hey, you know what? You can be there in X amount of years. Let me help you. And I think that's probably the most rewarding thing ever when it comes to growing people. I've had experiences where I've seen people being somebody else's employee and all of a sudden they become their manager because there's a different trajectory. And so I think it's really the combination of business success, business achievements, but also looking at personal, how you can grow someone and really maximize the talent. You know, it's interesting. I know you're a big fan of Steve Jobs and there's a great quote from Jobs where he says, great things in business are never done by one person. They're done by a team of people. And sometimes we forget that as a manager because we have others above us who are looking for the numbers and the results and everything else. But at the end of the day, I would agree with you. The best thing you can do as a manager is to hire well, develop them, give them the freedom to realize their potential, get out of their way more times than not. And support when needed and counsel when needed. Absolutely. You talked about jobs. I think the the 2015 biopic was, what's his name? Uh, Fassbender. There's a scene in in that movie and I love quotes. And again, love, hate, Steve Jobs. The point is when it comes to teams, he he argues, I think he's at Next at the time and he's launching like the next computer. And Voz confronts him because he's, yeah, everybody calls you a a genius and blah, blah, blah. But what do you do? You do nothing. And Jobs looks at him and I played the orchestra and you're a great musician. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something, again, that that was like six, seven years ago, but I was like, that's great. And and you talked about the, the skills of great leaders. It's also to admit that you can't play every instrument, okay? You only have a certain limited set of skills and you have to be able to accept that and, and admit it and surround yourself with actually people that are going to be able to play all the instruments to create that great symphony. 
Your role is to conduct the orchestra. Your role is to lead, to show the way and keep everybody on the same tempo. And from that moment, I really looked at myself and I talked to other leaders and also my teams about, I'm not going to admit I can do that, but you can do it really well. You also make me think this will be the third and final Steve Jobs quote. But the other thing that he said was creativity is just connecting things, right? Because I think from a distance, we look at him as almost being the mad genius. But at the end of the day, there's nothing that's brand new. It's reformulation of other great ideas and the combination of things that allow product to stand out, or at least in my mind. I don't know if I would agree okay. 100% with, with there's nothing that's renewed. And again, it's what I call the difference between iteration and invention. Okay. When you think about product creation, especially in performance, you create a solution to a problem. And most of the time you have an athlete in mind and you get insights and you create that solution and you can iterate, make better something that exists, build on an existing platform or just invent something. And again, I think clearly what makes the difference between that invention and iteration is the experience you get with the product or the solution you put out there. So I might disagree slightly in the the saying of there's nothing new. I believe that there are things that nobody ever thought about until somebody did and put it out there. And that's what's called an invention. I think that's great. In wrapping up here, has there been a pivot, a change of direction in your career that was instrumental? Because now you're onto new and different things. I don't know if that would be the answer to the question what you're doing today, but a moment in time where you took a different direction? Yeah, there's been a few before Nike, during Nike, and again we're, we're <laughs> I don't want to be dwelling on Nike, but again that's been half my life. Sure. And and after Nike or if I were to go backwards, I'd say probably my Nike exit wasn't my choice. I'll put it out there. But although I wasn't ready and I was not necessarily expecting that, it's one of those things where I remember talking to a friend of mine that actually went through a divorce and he was saying that it didn't happen to me. I'm not a victim. It happened for me in a way that he looked at it as an opportunity to look at things differently. And he was trying to get the positive out of rather terrible situation, especially when you have children and you've been with someone for quite some time. So for me, immediately as I woke up the building and I was walking to my car and didn't have a computer, didn't have a phone, didn't have nothing. Nobody to talk to. So I could self-reflect and literally on my drive home, I was like, okay, so if it happened for me, now what? And that was a pivotal moment where I could actually have gone the other way, see myself as a victim and blame it on everybody. And and I chose to not let go because that wouldn't be true, but really immediately pivot into what now, because what happened was in the past and I could not go back and, and change it. So I really started looking at it that way. But pivotal moments was also, I talked about how I first interacted with Nike. It was like literally getting in my car instead of putting that application in the mail and going and meeting face to face with someone that could put a face on my name and say, actually, I like the fact that you didn't put a letter in the mail and expected that we would get it and things like that. It goes back to assume nothing, confirm everything. I wanted to make sure that somebody would get my letter, would read my letter and hear my story. And so that was also a pivotal moment. and, And then Actually, not long after I decided to quit that job so I could focus on landing a job at Nike. So it was pivotal. There were moments in sports, going to events, meeting with athletes that were pivotal. Everything one went over should be formative. I love learning organically. I read, I listen to podcasts, I, but I'm a student. I'm a student. I don't know if I mentioned it earlier, but I see myself as a builder. And from building product at Nike to what I do now, which is more about building buildings, gyms, it's all about the experience. It's all about looking at it through the eyes of the consumer or or the members when it comes to our gyms and how you're going to feel wearing that product, wearing that shoe or walking into 
the building. So yes, and all of that is based on those key moments that see the light bulb. Yeah, I think what you're talking about in the vernacular of Dr. Carol Dweck, you're talking about a growth mindset that you're talking Absolutely. about. Yeah. yeah, And that can be learned. It's not hardwired, but it feels like it's part of your DNA to take a situation and make the very best of it and want to learn, want to be better, want to develop. And I think the people that have nailed that, where it's inherent in their makeup, are better situated to be successful as you have been within your career. Can you talk a little bit about where you are today and what you're focused on and your nine to five or sure. eight to seven? So- my eight to seven. Yeah. So after I left Nike, actually, I, I, not that I was, I said I wasn't ready and I, and I wasn't, but I started to think about, okay, how much longer am, am I going to be here and things like that? And what are my values? What is it that I like to do? And we hadn't values in Nike. I believe that the not values, maxims, and one of them is still there. And one that really uh, stuck is we serve athletes, which was amazing fuel into creating product and experiences. And I had actually started like a little thing on the side, which was an agency of to help athletes organizations. So that was like 2013. I started like helping sports organizations with training camps and things like that. I mentioned Martinique, which is where my parents are from. The Martinique team would come to the US for the Gold Cup. And, and I believe you and I probably talked about that during our time at Nike. So I would help them with the camp and I was literally an official on the team for three Gold Cups. Didn't do the last one in 19, but the three Gold Cups had amazing experiences. I worked alongside professional athletes as well. And and through that, I'm like, hey, I I think I love that. So I would want to do that after my Nike life. So I started that that little thing on the side. And immediately after I left Nike at the end of 2019, I'm like, okay, I'm going to go do that. Except that, again, it's about sports. And not long after COVID hit, we got into a pandemic, everything shut down. I had a couple of people I was working with. One of them was, was a franchise owner for this, uh, this uh, gym with a number of facilities in Oregon and Washington. And I started helping with business development and managing facilities and all the way to building new clubs. So that's what I've been doing. Very interesting, learning a lot, meeting new people. At the end of the day, I'm happy because like I said, I'm a builder. That's amazing. So let's switch gears and uh, get into a lightning round of questions. When were you most scared? When I had my first child, I didn't know what to expect. <laughs> I didn't no. know what to expect. That was the scare. Everything went well. She was not in labor for long, but I didn't know what to expect. So I was scared. Let's talk about your other love here, soccer, football. Which would you rather have happen? PSG, your club, winning its first Champions League or your beloved French team winning its third World Cup? Champions League. For sure. So let's also then give you a choice between two groundbreaking notable French authors. Who's your choice go to? Jules Verne and his science fiction work or Victor Hugo, author of Hunchback of Notre Dame and Les Mis? Jules Verne. I was a fan. I think I read all these books as a kid. It's, it's interesting. I, for some reason, I've rediscovered him as well. And I'm not the biggest science fiction fan, but I read Journey to the Center of the Earth because I remember that as a child. And yeah. next up on the list is Around the World and 80 Days. And a couple of years back, I read 20,000 Weeks Under the Sea. And you think yeah. about an innovative, groundbreaking mind, because I don't know that there's anybody in fiction quite like him. No, absolutely spot on. I think... Uh... It was a dreamer, it was a visionary. It's the adventure, the unknown, but the ability to, literally his books had like sketches in them of what the yeah. Nautilus in, in 20,000 Leagues, you know, looked like and all this. And you're looking at this, you're like, man, what is going on there? So I, I love Victor Hugo, but different deal, different. It doesn't transport you as much, I'd say. This also makes me think, for some reason, I've decided to reread this past year, five Hemingway books. And there's an interesting quote from Ernest where he says, there are only two places in the world where we can live happy, 
at home and in Paris. I would assume you would probably agree with that, but what does that quote make you think of? If home is in Paris, that makes it one. Yeah, I think you check both boxes here, right? <laughs> that, that makes it one. But myself, my family, obviously my overall, and if we're near the water and we don't have to deal with winter or rain or anything mm-hmm. like that, I think we'd be happy. So anywhere that's probably an island. That ties into my next question, which is describe your perfect day. Ah, oh, perfect day. Uh, perfect day is when it feels like I had 30 hours of oh. daylight and I was able to do so much. I think any day for me, I want to be, before I close my eyes and I want to count the things that I was able to achieve. I totally agree. I do exactly the same thing as I'm about to fall asleep. I'm like, so what did I accomplish today? And it's both yep. a blessing and a curse. I don't find it exhausting. I find it invigorating. And much like you, I'm a learner, so I love new experiences. So what's the best gift that you've ever received? Time. Obviously, you think about a gift. You think about most people, I think, would point at an object or something that's material. I think the gift of time to me is probably one of the best gifts and inexpensive gifts you could give anyone. You could receive and, and give. And I can tell you the number of times where I went to someone that wasn't looking at the time we would spend together and you can have a conversation, you can have fun, whatever. But And for me, just to give time could be to someone in my family or a tall stranger, and I've done it, just to spend time. And, and I think the value of time is definitely underrated, underrepresented, in my opinion. No, I totally agree with you. If your childhood had a smell, what would it be? Bacon. Ooh, <laughs> that's universal. <laughs> I, 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 I totally made that up, but <laughs> I made it up, but I think there's something real about it because one, I love bacon. It's not that I love the smell of bacon, but it's like that sense of something's cooking. It's the morning or, yeah. or whatever it is. I think there's something, it could be many different things, but I made it up for a reason, I think. Final question. If you think back, what advice would you give your younger self? Slow down. goes back to time. I think that's wonderful. Rudy, this has been great. Thank you so much for taking your time, sharing your time with us and your thoughts. As a learner, I've learned some things here just in this brief hour with you. So I really appreciate that. And Godspeed. Thank you, Mark. Really had a good time. Godspeed. Well, that's a wrap on today's Sports Symphony featuring conductor Rudy Manival. I hope you enjoyed receiving an insider's view into Nike's product development world and hearing Rudy's story. Next week, we connect with Catherine Baldotti Donwin, a senior executive who worked at Reebok, Rika, Puma, and Converse. Catherine's also a friend and a current colleague of mine at Oregon Sports Angels, and she's a true champion for women's sports. I'll leave you with some music from one of Rudy's favorite all-time French artists, Charles Aznavour. Until next time, sports fans. Café voisin, nous étions quelques-uns qui attendions la gloire. Et bien que miséreux, avec le ventre creux, nous cessions d'y croire. Et quand quelques bistrots, contre un mort au pas chaud, nous prenaient une toile, on récitait.